The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everyone. Josh and Chuck here to remind you that our last three shows of the year, and boy, this is a good show this year, are taking place very soon and tickets are still available. Yeah, so get in the saddle and come out and see us partners in Orlando, Atlanta, and Nashville. Just go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and click on the tour link and you can get all your tickets right there. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark and Charles W. Chuck Bryan is here. And this is Stuff You Should Know, Dear Diary Edition. Uh, well, I guess I'll just ask the obvious question. Have you ever kept a diary of any kind? Any kind of journal? Yeah, I think I did when I was younger, but I, I haven't in a long, long time. And it's one of those things like I'm like, gosh, this is such a great idea. And I'll do it a couple of times and then I just fall off. Yeah. Fall off the wagon. I think it's uh, one of those things that you can either be inclined to be one of those people that does it and keeps up with it or not, but you can also learn to do it, I think, uh, with practice, like anything else, by setting that habit. Uh, and the reason I assigned this idea to Livia, who did a great job, is because my, my good friend Mike Anderson has kept a daily journal since 1991. Dear Mike. It's pretty amazing. I obviously never read it, but it's just uh, it comes up it comes up every now and then because it's it is a journal of his life. But what it serves, as far as the friend group goes, is a oh, journal yeah. of all of our lives to a certain degree. That's neat. Uh, and sometimes we'll be talking, we'll be camping, or just hanging out or something, and we'll be talking about something that happened in the old days, and we won't be clear on it. And Mike will just be like, you know, I can find that out for us. <laughs> Uh, and it's just, it's cool. It's a, it's a bit of a time capsule and, you know, it's, uh, he's, he's currently getting them, I think, digitized from his old, uh, handwriting days, oh, wow. uh, handwritten days rather. And I was like, you know, these are important, right? And you need to make sure, you know, <laughs> we're all getting older and like, what if a UFO picked you up and took you away? And he's like, I got that cover, my friend there, uh, going to his daughter already. They will be preserved by her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would, Mike's a crazy, weird, creative genius. So I would, oh. I'd like to see these like published one day. Yeah, that's who you want to keep a journal for that long, for sure. It could be one of those things that comes out, you know, a hundred years from now, and that's when he becomes famous. <laughs> what what year did he start? Nineteen ninety one, and so, it's twenty twenty three. So yeah. do the math. 
32, no, wait, 38 years. <laughs> Do the math. Are you sweating? Mm-hmm. <laughs> My upper lip is. Uh, anyway, so this is on diaries, and this actually turned out, at least in the history uh, section, to be way more woman-centric than I imagined it would be. But it makes a lot of sense now that I see the history of it. Well, yeah, and if you kind of dive into um, 10th century Japan, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, there was a, a kind of a movement of journaling, mm-hmm. what a lot of people point to as the first real historical example of people using diaries. They're they're writing because they're not allowed to be externally. So mm-hmm. the only way to share themselves is to to write to themselves. And women have so long been repressed by men that I I could see journaling being um, a largely woman affair um, for for most of history, I should say. Yeah. I mean, we can actually start with that because the earlier examples aren't really diaries. Um, like we're talking about a papyrus logbook um, by an Egyptian official named Merer about limestone blocks being delivered for the pyramids at Giza. Not a diary. Not a diary because there's nothing, you know, a diary is something personal about someone's experiences. So he wasn't like 10 blocks delivered today. Also feeling a little depressed, if anyone cares. Mm-hmm. It was just recording of things. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, got a little closer with his meditations uh, because he did talk about things like, here's how I'd like to, uh, I'd like to develop these character traits and cultivate these things in my life. Mm-hmm. But it still was sort of abstract it wasn't like today this happened and I felt this way about it. So it's kind of these pillow books that are kind of the first diaries, I think, right? Yeah, and again, uh, they came up among the uh, ladies of the court in Japan in the 10th century. And um, again, they were extraordinarily repressed, but they were able to share themselves so eloquently that a lot of these, um, these what are called pillow books survived. And one of them was essentially, so they would kind of veer into fiction and poetry and stuff in addition to recording, you know, historical events at the court, both large and small. It could be gossip. It could be the death of an emperor. Um, They're really good historical records, but they're also really good um, inward records of historical figures who otherwise wouldn't have, who who would have been lost to history. Um, And that from that tradition of kind of veering into fiction a little bit, What's considered the first novel, The Tale of the Genji, uh, came out in the 11th century um, by um, uh, Murasaki Shikibu. I think I got that right. And um, that was basically the first novel that came out of the pillow books. Yeah, and there there were the pillow books, uh, which were written by many women. Um, They used a specific writing system that was, I think, the first purely Japanese system called Hiraguna. I'm probably going to get a lot of this stuff wrong. And that was compared to the official writing system called kanji, Mm -hmm. which I think was derived from Chinese and used exclusively by men. And this other writing system was used only by women, at least at first. I'm not sure if that changed. Uh, And I think it was a little simpler, but what it allowed for was if you weren't like formally educated, you could learn this writing system and it allowed for more expression of emotion Mm. and like inner thoughts than it seems like kanji was a little more rigid and didn't have, you know, words and characters for that stuff. Pretty neat. So they wrote these pillow books. There's also one called The Pillow Book, 
And that was a specific book written by, uh, how would you pronounce S-E-I as a first name? Sei. 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 Uh, Shonagon. And that was made into a movie in 1986. Uh, Peter Greenaway, The Pillow Book, with what's-his-face, uh, Obi-Wan Howard Kenobi. Mandel. <laughs> no, what's the guy? Uh, Ewan McGregor was in that. Mm. I thought you were talking but, about Sir Alec Guinness. No. Uh Europe, they started doing this in the Renaissance, right? Started journaling. Yeah, and and what's interesting about that is this is when journaling really kind of became more widespread because the idea of individualism became more widespread around the right. Renaissance. So people started reflecting on their own experiences rather than, you know, just counting themselves as part of the crowd. It became, it mattered how they felt about something that happened and they started writing it down. So even though the pillow books kind of really kicked it off, there were several centuries where that just kind of fell away and then it was picked mm-hmm. up again and really kind of took off, at least for those of us in the um, the West, uh, beginning in the Renaissance, Renaissance Europe. Yeah. Uh, around the same time, Puritans started doing this stuff. Quakers started doing it. But these, uh, they were diaries, but it was a little more of a, you know, how can I be a better Puritan or a better Quaker yeah. Um, and, you know, very sort of religious-based rather than just, like, hear my feelings about, you know, Goody Proctor. Exactly. They Oh, my God, I can't imagine they would write something like that. <laughs> uh, the French got really into it, too, during the French Revolution, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know exactly what kicked that off, but they came up with what's called the Journal Intime, the Intimate Journal. Um, and the British also said, hey, that's a pretty good idea. So they're writing about their inner lives, their inner feelings, thoughts, experiences. This is the, I guess, the early 19th century. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, that same century, so this is, so now people are, like, just everyday people are, are writing journals. So they're suddenly self-important. And um, one of the other big things as far as diaries and journaling um, are concerned that came about in the 19th century was publishing old journals and diaries yeah, as not just historical records, but as like kind of like for mass consumption as well. Yeah, which is really interesting because um, like, I think it's super cool that you can go back and read firsthand accounts of the, the, um, the westward expansion. Uh, and again, a lot of these were written by women mm-hmm. and what they were going through at the time. It's like it's just a fascinating peak into these times that you can't get any other way. I mean, you can get artifacts, you can recreate scenes in a museum, uh, you can paint pictures of stuff that happened, mm-hmm. but like there's nothing like being able, and I know they say pictures are worth a thousand words, but I think it's kind of reversed in this situation. I think a diary <laughs> is worth like a gazillion pictures. <laughs> Very nice. You know? I was going to say a thousand words in a diary is worth a picture. Right. Yeah, worth one picture. But the idea that people were now willing to publish other people's journals and diaries that were uh, not intended for publication, it actually created a new form, a a new literary form, the journal, Mm -hmm. the diary, usually historical. And um, Livia points out that that it kind of raised the question from that point on, like, are you really just writing for yourself? Right. Or can you ever overcome the idea that if you don't destroy these before you die, mm-hmm. that there's a chance that somebody might discover them and find them worth publishing? And yeah. so are you paying attention a little more to sentence structure, to grammar, to the words you're using? You're trying a little harder than you would. And therefore, is it a little less of, 
um, something than it was before people started publishing these. Yeah. Yeah, I get that question. Uh, there's one of our old favorites, Oscar Wilde. There's a very funny uh, line in The Importance of Being Earnest when a character won't let another read their diary. And she says, it is simply a very young girl's record of her own thoughts and impressions and consequently meant for publication. When it appears in volume form, I hope you will order a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty hilarious. It's good stuff. Very Oscar Wilde. So the importance of being earnest came out in 1895, which means that that idea was established by then, very well established. Mm -hmm. And not a lot happened for about a century. And then blogging came along in the late right. 90s. And all of a sudden, the whole point was to share your diary, your journal, your innermost thoughts. The, the thing about doing it online, though, is now you had an option. You could share it with your intimates, your closest friends and family, mm -hmm. or... And, like, keep everybody else out. I don't know, through password protection? Who knows? Or yeah. you could go the other way around and blog anonymously and share it with everybody, but your closest friends and family have no idea it's you if you do it correctly. Either way, you're yeah. sharing things in, in ways that that diarists never, ever did before. Yeah, or blog non-anonymously for just anyone to read anything, and that's kind of what social media ended up being. Yeah. Just let it all hang out there. And isn't it great yeah. <laughs> that that happened? If everybody's ruining their own life, then nobody's ruining their own life. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, maybe let's take an early break. Yes. Okay. We're going to take an early break, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the more famous historical diaries out there. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! <laughs> The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
take good care and we'll see you there. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, we were talking before the break about historical diaries and how. Uh, I haven't ever really read one. I've read um, memoirs and things, which is fine. That's different. Yeah, it's a different deal. I'd love to read one of these. I um, It really, like, primed my pump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah? Did that I'm happen while you were letting it all hang out there? <laughs> uh, there's a naval administrator, a very famous person named Samuel Pepys, who wrote a, a journal for about nine years uh, in shorthand, even, Um and this is sort of a, a classic example of a of a historical diary because he wrote about, you know, the Restoration and the Great Plague of London and mm -hmm. the Fire of London. And uh, so not only do you have that stuff, but you have this stuff from his perspective. And you also have him getting annoyed in his marriage and talking about uh, how excited he was about his new watch and like kind of fun things like that. Yeah, he's considered the greatest English diarist. And I'll, I'll own it. Uh, last time he came up, I called him Pepes, I think. <laughs> Probably. But people wrote in and corrected us, so we got it right this time. Yeah, this this watch, uh, can you read that? That's a pretty fun entry, I think, about his new watch. But Lord, to see how much of my old folly and childishness hangs on me still, that I cannot forbear carrying my watch in my hand in the coach all the afternoon and seeing what o'clock it is 100 times. That was my <laughs> Samuel Pepys. I love it. That's fun. He's he's like, what that does is that makes it relatable because everyone has gotten a new watch, watch or a new uh, shirt that they're like, oh, I gotta look in the mirror again, and see how this thing looks. Mm -hmm. Like, people get excited about that stuff, and it's fun to see someone write about you know the fire of London in one hand and also talk about how excited they are about their new watch. Um, he wrote more than a million words, dude, which on its wow. face sounds like a lot, but get this. The entire Harry Potter series is just over a million words. So he wrote about the the same amount of words as the entire all the books of Harry Potter by That's hand in less time than J.K. Rowling wrote them. <laughs> oh, all right, pretty nuts. Little shade? Uh, no, not really. I'm just it's a good touchstone. Sure. Plus, we could shade her for all kinds of reasons. Sure. That don't involve speed of writing. If you really want to do that, who's the Game of Thrones guy? That's what, everyone's mad at him. Um, uh, CC. CC Deville. No, what's his name? George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Are they still mad at him? Jesus, people, give him a break. I mean, isn't that the deal? I don't even know anything about that stuff, but I think everyone's just like, "Why aren't you finishing it?" Huh. Well, what about All Michael right. Shiner, Chuck? Yes, he uh, was an enslaved person in Maryland, and in 1805, 
uh, was eventually a free man, but he worked at the Washington Naval Yards um, for for many decades and ended up keeping a 56-year diary wow. that was uh, maybe like my friend's Mike uh, one day mm-hmm. that'll be published after he died uh, by historians. So all of a sudden you have this amazing um, account of the life of, a, of an enslaved person over 50 and then a free person over 56 years. Yeah. He also was not educated. Born a slave, you typically weren't educated. In fact, it was usually illegal to educate a slave at the time. So he taught himself, apparently. So his he, he uses his own spelling, his own grammar, very mm-hmm. little punctuation. Um, and he had to conserve paper as much as possible. So he would kind of like write stuff um, wherever there was space on a, an old page that he'd left. Oh, wow. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's, I think his grandson came along and kind of organized it, and, and um, it ended up being published. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's one thing you'll see as a tip later on is to is is to write as good as you can write. If you're not some fancy great writer, like, don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, you cannot use punctuation, and academics yeah. centuries later will come along and digitize your stuff and translate it essentially <laughs> exactly. for everybody. It's it's that—it can be that important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Josie Underwood is another great example. Um, probably the, the most famous— civilian account of the Civil War, uh, she was a unique uh, in a unique position because she was from a Southern family in Kentucky, a very prominent family in Bowling Green mm-hmm. of slaveholders, but she was sympathetic to the Union mm-hmm. cause. And, uh, you know, she writes a very sort of honest first-person account as someone from that perspective throughout the Civil War, and it's, it became very famous. Yeah, but then interspersed with that, with being occupied by the Confederate Army and then the Union Army, she also, like, talked about normal life for, like, a sure. society person in Bowling Green, mm-hmm. Kentucky, where, you know, going to parties or things like that, or looking for what she called her true prince, a husband. So it has—it's very much like um, Samuel Pepys. There's historic events, but it's written from the perspective of the individual who also writes about themselves, too. Yeah, and this this stuff is—this is history. I mean, this is how we learn about history. If you read— history books, and they describe in great detail about how life was. Some of that is from research mm-hmm. and and clues and things like that, but some of that is from first-person accounts. Yeah. Uh, there was another very, very famous journal. I don't know if you'd call it a diary, but um, it was from Captain Robert Falcon Scott, who led um, an expedition to the South Pole in 1912, was trying to be the first expedition to the South Pole. And in fact, they reached the South Pole to find that a rival explorer had beat them by one month. And so they had to make it back to civilization. They never made it back. So um, Scott chronicled their slow demise over weeks, trudging oh, through the Arctic, or the Antarctic, I should say, um, just trying to get back to safety and then just not doing it. I bet that's a heavy read. It is. I was reading it today, and it's just, it's, 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 yeah, it's crazy to, to put yourself in that situation, which he makes it easy to do. And just these little, you know, few sentence, um, what do you call them? Not inscriptions or installations, uh, entries. Uh-huh. It, just a few sentences each typically, but yeah. it really kind of draws you in, like inside the tent where a blizzard's going and one guy's nose is falling off because it's so frostbitten. Right. Everybody's trying to keep their spirits up kind of thing. Like he really... It's a really moving journal, for sure. Uh, there's another one, and I never knew how to pronounce this name, Anais Nin. 
But I finally today listened to the man on YouTube. Yeah. You ever listen to that guy? Yes. Today we will learn to pronounce the name. Who is that a real person? I don't know anymore. No one knows anymore. I gotta I gotta figure that out. That'd be a good short stuff, maybe even. Who's real? Who is that person? Okay. Who are these people? All right. We'll do it as Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. Uh, anyway, he said it was pronounced a nice nin. Uh, and this was, of course, a very famous diary that uh, she kept from uh, age 11 mm -hmm. until, and this is 1914, until she died <clears throat> in 1977. Mm -hmm. And it was noteworthy in that it was uh, very sort of body stuff for the time. She talked very personally about, um, you know, sort of romantic escapades that people did not talk about at the time. Uh, it was published in 66, uh, like a sanitized version, mm -hmm. and was a big hit uh, with the ladies. Um, largely, and then she said, hey, after I die, why don't you publish the full and uncensored version? But even the, the sanitized version was like, I've been living oh, yeah. a double life. I've been having this affair. I'm married to two guys. I've split my life yeah. between New York and Los Angeles, and my husband doesn't know. Um, all, like, just all sorts of stuff, and she purposefully published them while she was alive, and, I mean, that's... a tremendous amount of risk that she took on. She ended up becoming a feminist icon, like, basically overnight as a result. Uh, another icon, you can't talk about diaries yeah. without talking about Anne Frank. Uh, and this is something that I never knew. Um, obviously, if, you know, we'll tell you who Anne Frank is, because I always think everyone knows, yeah. uh, even because it's the second most widely read book in the world after the Bible. But Anne Frank uh, wrote a diary between 1942 and 1944 as a teenager, um, started at 13, hiding from the Nazis uh, uh, with her family, and wrote this diary. The thing I never knew is that she uh, had planned to publish it. Um, as the story goes, she was inspired by a radio transmission in 1944 from the Dutch government that said, hey, collect this and put it on paper, all this every everyday material about Nazi occupation, like write it down so people know. Mm -hmm. And so she did that and like rewrote it with the aim of publishing it uh, before she was captured. Yeah. So that, that her original diary is considered Diary A. Like there's ent entire people have written theses on like parts of this stuff. So um, the first one's Diary A, the one that she rewrote intended for publication that's considered Diary B. And her father, Otto, the only one who survived um, the, the Nazi occupation in, in the Netherlands of the family uh, because they were found out by the Gestapo and taken to concentration camps, which is where Anne Frank was murdered as a girl still. Um, mm -hmm. She would have been maybe 15 or 16 at the time. Uh, Otto survived, and he um, was given her journals um, and basically had them put together journal diary a and diary b to kind mm -hmm. of create like a a version of it for public consumption and after he died they published the whole thing and that's considered diary c and like you said i mean it's probably the second most read book in the entire world after the bible um and for good reason too i mean like this the the insight into history that it gives is is just amazing and unparalleled but also there's a, a poet named John Berryman who put it like this. He said that this the book is about the conversion of a child into a person. Mm. And this and Frank's going through this conversion from age 13 to 15. 
big, mm-hmm. big difference in ages right there, 13 to 15. A lot happens. Yeah. And she's doing it hidden away in an attic in yeah. in the Netherlands, hiding out from the Nazi, hiding for her life. You ever been to the Anne Frank house? No, I haven't. You ever been to Amsterdam? Yes. Okay. Make me feel bad, though, why don't you? No, you shouldn't feel bad. <laughs> I, I've been there a few times, and I went once. I didn't go two times. <laughs> well, at least you went once, though. I don't even have that to to boast about. But I would like to go, though. I mean, I, I can't imagine how moving that place is. Yeah. Um, so those are some famous examples of famous journals, I guess. Um, you want to take another break and talk about why people might write journals in the first place? Yeah, I think it's another earliest break, but it aligns nicely. Okay. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So, Chuck, there's all sorts of reasons to write in your journal, whether you're talking about limestone being delivered to uh, build a pyramid (laughs) or being enslaved Uh in the Navy yards or being occupied by the Confederate Army. Um, 
they're, they're, people have been doing it for centuries and centuries and centuries without any real intention to do anything other than kind of get their thoughts out on paper. And it yeah. wasn't until the 1960s that psychotherapists were like, you know, there's something to that. People are yeah. putting their internal lives out into, you know, written form. They're getting out of their minds and into the world. There mm. has to be some therapeutic benefit to that. And a, a therapist named uh, Ira Progoff came up with what's called intensive journaling. Yeah. And like you said, it was the 1960s. Uh, in his version, it was basically a notebook, like a three-ring binder uh, with color-coded sections about uh, topically arranged, thematically arranged. Um, it could be like um, dream, recording your dreams, which we'll talk about again a little bit later. Mm could have been just daily life stuff. It could be very like, hey, write about a big um, event in your life. And we'll talk a little bit more about trauma journaling later because that can be very valuable right. and painful, I imagine. Um, but basically, it's it's all about like uh, almost like a meditation and allowing things that were important to you or related to you at different points of your life to come to the forefront of your mind and just sort of write out through the pen onto the paper or through your fingies onto the keyboard. Right. Yeah. You sit there for a few minutes reflecting on the topic you've decided to, to focus on for that journal entry. Then you write it. Then you read what you just wrote. And then you write your feelings about writing it and then reading it. That's got to be helpful. Got to be. And that's the point of all this. Like, we're going to get into some pretty deep BS here eventually. <laughs> But the upshot of it is there's a very, very little chance that it will be in, in any way harmful uh, and possibly very beneficial. And yeah, that, it could be difficult. Yes. And that, but that doesn't mean harmful. Right. And that that alone uh, makes it worth at least giving it a shot. And if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, then you gave it a try. Yeah. Uh, there's another guy named James Pennebaker uh, from Texas, University of Texas, Austin. He's a psychologist that um, did studies on what he called expressive writing, been doing this since the 80s. And he said, you know, where I find or where he found it helpful was when you were you would just start out with like very disjointed sort of raw feelings and things mm -hmm. and then transform that into a story and into a narrative. And the process of taking like a difficult experience, maybe just writing down the, the eight feelings you had about it. And then that gets a little more detailed and more detailed until you've turned it into a story can help you handle that stuff more easily and help you live with it. Yeah. And he, there's actually studies to back this up. Um, his whole thing is like you don't need to journal every day. If you do, fine. That's great. But he found that just um, one 15 to 30-minute session of writing about a difficult or traumatic experience can help um, relieve not just psychological symptoms but physiological symptoms as well. Um, and that if a lot of studies have found that if you do like three to four, 15 to 30 minute sessions writing about the same experience, it can mm -hmm. really help work past trauma that you've been carrying around. It's pretty amazing just writing about it. Yeah. Uh, some of the things they found in studies, uh, short term increase in distress or negative mood. Mm -hmm. That's what I was talking about. Like it may be difficult in the moment, uh, you know, bringing up these bad memories. But uh, it pays off in the long run. Um, evidence of improvements in depressive systems long-term and emotional well-being 
uh, benefits to physical health, like lower blood pressure, better lung function, mm-hmm. less illness, less doctor visits, better immune system, uh, more antibodies. Pretty neat. Pretty amazing. Yeah. And they think that it's just by um, getting this thing out of your working memory, essentially, um, you, by documenting on paper, you don't have to worry about remembering or thinking about it or ruminating about it anymore. You put it out there. And that that alone can um, lower your stress levels and your immune system can kick back in to higher gear again. Yeah. And I think he's the guy that really stressed, like, do it how you do it. If you want to write it with a pen, fine. You can put it in your phone. Don't, and don't worry about, like, writing well. Um, and don't worry about being fair even. Mm-hmm. Like, you're doing this for you. You're not doing this for publication. So write about how you really feel, even if – it's a very selfish thing in the moment right? Um, and try and really bring up a lot of sensory details and, you know, deep emotional, physical, sometimes feelings that you had at the moment of this trauma mm-hmm. and, uh, and be careful as you're doing it. It's, it's not like a uh, therapy replacement, but ideally to be used in conjunction with therapy. Remember in our meditate, no, our mindfulness episode where we talked about some mm-hmm. people who engage in mindfulness activities, like find that they're, they freak out because they accidentally uncovered trauma and they weren't prepared for right. it. Um, Pennebaker kind of warns about the same thing. He says that there is a too soon for for journaling. It can be that that potent and powerful that if you if it's if it follows too closely uh, after the actual traumatic event, it, it can be too hard on you, and that you should have at least some distance of time. And probably the more you know for a, a, a seriously traumatic event. You probably want to do this under the advisement of a, a therapist. Don't necessarily yeah. try to do it on yourself. So it's probably not going to harm you, but the the potential is there enough that if this is, I, I you could probably only be the only judge for yourself. It, right. If this is so weighty that it could break you mentally, you should probably yeah. talk to somebody first about how to do it correctly or when to do it. Yeah, totally agree. Um, a gratitude journal is something that I had never really heard of. Really? Uh, yeah, I never heard of that. Huh. I mean, I've heard, heard about, of course, gratitude and thankful and sure. ruminating on that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, like, actually writing it down in a, in a list or a journal is a pretty popular thing that I'm a big dummy for not knowing. No. Uh, because they've even done a meta-analysis, and so that means there's a lot of studies on it. Uh, in 2021, uh, Japanese researchers did this analysis and they found that um, it really helps with stress and depression if you do it uh, at least like six times. It said over the course of a study, I'm not sure what time frame that is, mm-hmm. but basically like, you know, it can take a lot of forms. Noticing generosity that you see walking around in the world, uh, th- things that you're just thankful for, um, it can help lead to you expressing gratitude and thanks to others. And you can also note that. Um, but it's, it's, you know, sort of a version of what's called positive affect journaling, um, which is basically foci- focusing on positive things and, and gratitude. And ideally, that's going to increase your well-being. And it seems like it would. Yeah, for sure. And they also say um, you want to be very detailed. Uh, you want to typically focus on people, not necessarily things that you're grateful for, although you can focus on that. And that yeah. – um, it's much better to focus on a single topic rather than, you know, list off five things like I'm grateful for this, this, and this. More like right. I'm grateful for this and and this is why. 
uh, yeah, is, yeah. is much more helpful as far as gratitude journals go. I like that. Um, also, going back to the trauma thing just real quick, uh, there was a 2016 um, study by a researcher named Ji Young Park, and um, they found that that people who use expressive journaling, which is writing about your experience, getting it out in those 15 to 30-minute sessions, um, they showed more self-distance after journaling. And self-distance mm-hmm. is actually it's a psychological term. It's a concept where you are more detached emotionally from an event that you experienced and that by being able to distance yourself from it, you're able to cope with it much easier, process it better Mm -hmm. than when you're super all up in it and it's overwhelming you. And they found that self-distancing can be um, helped along by journaling about the event. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of that uh, time heals wounds things. And I think the idea here is it can it can help sort of speed up that process, speed up that time. Yeah, and it helps you get things off your chest. It helps you clarify your thinking. And one other thing that it really helps you do is um, see other people's perspectives. And I imagine uh, you may be able to put stuff down on paper in private that you might not even tell a therapist that, that you think that you can be completely open to, you know? Yes, ideally that you are sharing that level of openness with your with your journal yeah. or diary. That's from what I can tell, the more you're able to do that, the healthier it could conceivably be. Although, I don't know if you said it or not, but Penn and Baker says maybe you don't want to journal every day because that can actually potentially make you ruminate more on negative stuff because you're talking I think you said that it. actually. Did I? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh there are th- several truths in your life. There is the truth you tell your therapist. Mm-hmm. There's the truth you tell your doctor. And then there's only one real truth, and that's the truth that you tell yourself probably. Yeah. When no one else knows anything, even the closest people in your life. Uh, I think the truth you tell yourself is probably the truest thing. You can also delude yourself, though, too. Oh, well, no, no. That's a completely different thing. Oh, oh, sorry. I brought that up. No, you can 100% lie to yourself. But uh, I think the I don't know. That's just an opinion of mine, you know. Sure. And that's why I think that journaling very privately could be like a really therapeutic thing. For sure. It seems like, it, yeah, that's the thing. When I said we were going to wade into BS, like there's a lot of people out there who have tried to qualify this, quantify it. HR people who are like, maybe we should get all the employees to journal every day. Uh, it's, it's like this thing may work, so everybody's turned it into a thing that you have to do. Um, yeah. And if not, then you're not you're not trying to achieve your goals, and you're you're not living your best life or whatever. Um, it's it, it's just it's meant to be one of those things that like if it helps you, great. If it doesn't, move on. It doesn't it doesn't have to be this thing that everybody has to do and benefit from in exactly the same way. Yeah, I have a a, a fun small collection of uh, two to three journal entries from various points of my oh, life. Oh, nice where I would say, I'm going to start doing this, man, because I'd do something like this or a teacher would talk about yeah. it. And I'd, all right, here we go. And I, a few days in, I stopped doing yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to not do anymore. I, I did have a, uh, I think the longest one I ever kept was for one full uh, quarter. We yeah. were in quarters back then mm-hmm. in college. I remember those. I had a playwriting class I took, and my playwriting teacher had us as part of the class. Like, it wasn't optional do what he called a commonplace journal. Mm -hmm. And that was just um, not even your thoughts and emotions, just more in the, as a writer might do, like 
things you notice and things that might inspire you and this and that. Commonplace things. Okay. So I, I did that for a quarter, but I don't think I have that one. That's my biggest, my oh. ro- most robust one, and it's lost to time. Poor guy. <laughs> uh, there are all kinds of journals that have become popular as far as like, oh, this person says this is a very good way to do right. it. Uh, the Artist's Way, a self-help book from 92 by Julia Cameron, talked about morning pages. Uh, so you just sort of, and this is based on the Jungian idea that your ego defense doesn't wake up until four, 45 minutes after you wake up. Yeah, I looked that up, and I don't think that's actually a thing that Jung ever said. Oh, really? Yeah. So did Julia Cameron? Like, I mean, it is a self-help book. Right. <laughs> anyway, that's the idea, at least, that sounds like it may or may not be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole idea is you do this first thing in the morning, sort of stream of consciousness style, um, to get just sort of drain out your brain of, like, uh, stuff that might plague you throughout the day later yeah, on. Yeah, the point isn't to just write anything, like, inspirational or good or whatever, just to get it out, like you were saying. Yeah. And that's a good example of what I was talking about with the BS. Like, does it have to be based on a Jungian idea and that is exactly 45 right. minutes? It's just like, hey, this works. You guys should give it a try. Don't try yeah. to write anything worthwhile. Just get out the crud that's going to plague you for the rest of the day. Why can't people present ideas like that anymore? No. Yeah, just say, do it when you're sweepy, because that seems to work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, why do you got to bring Jung into this? <laughs> He's like, don't drag me into this just because you use the word ego. Uh, we talked about gratitude journals. What are bullet journals? These are, well, they were created by a digital designer named Ryder Carroll, great digital designer name, back in 2013. And they're much more um, real-world focused like to-do lists, calendars. Um, Seems like a life system. Exactly. That's exactly what it, it is in written form. And okay. so whatever you need to help you, like you're trying to keep up with the meals you're eating for the week or the exercise you're doing or the uh, the chores you have to do or whatever, um, you have these different journals all within this kind of bullet journal, these different sections or segments to it that are typically laid out over time, a week, a month, or something like that, or by section. And um, people decorate them in very pretty ways. <laughs> well, and, and it's also can be, though, not literally just uh, things I have to get accomplished today, but like uh, like go to the store or go to this appointment, mm-hmm. but um, things you want to accomplish as a, in a holistic way. Like today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really work on uh, either gratitude or thankfulness or um, empathy or something like that. Right, here's... I got to check the box next to empathy. Right. I, I empathize today. <laughs> check. That sounded slightly cynical. Dream journals. Yeah. Oh, I don't do those either. No, but um, so there are formal interpretation systems of dreams. Like if your teeth fall out, you're worried about your um, looks or something like that. Right. Um, those are clearly obviously just totally wrong. Um, but – there is a usefulness to dream journals in that it's it's very much like getting your thoughts out with an, with mm-hmm. typical journaling. With dream journals, you're recording the thoughts that you got out while you were dreaming before they you know disappear. You know, in that forty five minutes before your ego defenses go up. Right. <laughs> but that's that's kind of the point of dream journaling. You're almost visiting or you're recording these visits to the other parts of your mind that you can't typically uh-huh. access. So you're just jotting down what happened and. It can affect your waking life in in ways. Um, I read a, a New York Times letter 
from somebody who suggested doing this, and they were like, it makes, when I dream about somebody in a certain way, when I see them the next time, I notice those qualities about them. So, like, the dreams, logging the dreams affects how they navigate waking life, which sounds pretty neat. I mean, that sounds like the most fun one. Yeah. Just for no other reason than to go back and read about fun, weird dreams years later. Exactly. Have you ever woken up, uh, have you ever been, like, mad at Yumi in a dream and woken up a little bit, like, feeling a little mad, even though that's totally unfair? No, not that specific thing, but I have been out of sorts in many different ways from dreams, and yeah. it takes a little while. Because, I mean, think about it. The same neurochemicals are being released in your brain, whether you're awake or you're asleep while you're experiencing that. And yeah. if they happen to still be flooding your brain when you wake up, you're still going to be feeling that way, you know? Yeah. Emily and I both had dreams where, like, one of us did something to the other in a dream <laughs> really? that really pissed us off. And you wake up, and you know it's unreasonable, and you try to shake it, but you're like, I'm sorry, I'm just a little mad at you for my dream. And then we laugh and talk about how unfair that is. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to me in normal life, too, with um, TV shows. Like, oh, they'll sure. go to commercial break, you know, when you're watching regular TV. Uh-huh. And I'll be like, why am I so, like, tense right now or upset? And I'll realize it's because I just watched the kid get kidnapped on Law & Order. <laughs> and, like, that sensation is carried over into the commercial break, and now I'm suddenly paying attention to it and wondering why I feel that way. Uh, that's fun. We were in <laughs> New York one time, and similarly, we were uh, we were leaving, like, kind of finishing up at our table, and the, um, the waiter came over and says, like, hey, you guys are about done, right? Because someone, you know, is waiting to be seated, like, in a really nice way. Mm-hmm. We we're like, yeah, yeah, we're getting out of here. You can go, go ahead and bring them over or whatever. And uh, it was the actor from that TV show, The Killing. The woman uh, or the man? Billy Campbell? That doesn't sound right, but maybe it is. I thought he was, like, Swedish or something. Uh, there was an original Swedish version of The Killing. Uh, is that what I watched? I don't know. Were no, there Joel, subtitles? <laughs> Billy Campbell is the other. He is in that show, but I was talking about Joel Kinnaman. Is he the, the congressman or the city councilman? <laughs> No, he was he is Swedish actually, Swedish American. He he was the uh the partner. That's Billy Campbell. Well, I don't want to get too involved here cuz I don't want to give anything away. Okay. But uh Kinnaman was for sure her partner. Okay. All right. I guess I only made it past season 2. <laughs> anyway, he that it was him and it was his uh TV show. And uh he had, uh, again, I don't want to give anything away, but he had just done, he had been a, a bad person in that week's episode. <laughs> and I kind of scowled and I was like, you. I was like, I'm so mad at you. And he was like, I'm sorry, bro. Oh, man. He was like, everybody, he said, on the streets this week has been so rough. <laughs> he was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, that's really kind of funny, actually. So you might be thinking of Peter Sarsgaard. He was in it. No, I mean, I'm thinking about Joel Kinnaman. Okay, so we're talking about the same person. I thought his name was Billy Campbell. Billy Campbell was the con- or the city councilman. Yeah, he he's older. He's, like, in his 60s. Okay. And he, he played, uh, the, he was the Rocketeer. Oh, I didn't know that. I never saw that movie. It just looked creepy in Art Deco. But, but I mean, I mean, cop partner. Yes, I know what Not, you're talking about. Yeah, Joel Kinnaman was the cop partner. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about the same person. I just had the name wrong. You okay. had the name right. Okay. Is that what you, you want to hear? Is that what you're holding out for here? I'm not holding out for anything. You got anything else about journaling or diaries? Uh, nah. 
Well, I think I speak for us all when I say that we hope you find that quarter um, journal. What was it called? The what journal? The Commonplace Notebook. Commonplace Notebook. What a great name. Yeah. Uh, it seems like something that would be stitched together with, like, fabric and twine, you know? And there's, like, a mushroom on it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> Chuck said, yeah, sure, everybody. That means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this things that we have recommended. Did I read this? I don't think I did. I'll read it again. Uh, hey, guys. My name is Evan Whitby from Hendersonville, North Carolina. Uh, it's kind of a long one, but I'll just say that Evan really loves the show. And it's meant a lot to him through his life. Uh, and one of the biggest ways that it means a lot is the recommendations, uh, movie recommendations mm-hmm. that Evan has gotten from us over the years. Uh, sometimes it's a plug or just comes up in conversation. But by this point, I trust your taste a lot, so I check most of them out uh, and then list a bunch of examples. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows, uh, Reservation Dogs, mm-hmm. Larry Sanders Show, uh, Nate Bargatze's stand-up, yeah. uh, Eyes Wide Shut, just to name a few that I particularly liked. Uh, and I just finished watching both seasons of Dicktown, which was uh, is John Hodgman's show and David, David Reese's show. Yeah, that's right. yeah. Uh, and you were right in that it's the perfect length to finish it uh, all in one sitting. And as a native North Carolinian uh, who has lived all around the state my whole life, I found it particularly funny. Uh, go Wolfpack. I look forward to many more lessons and many more laughs. Thanks to the whole team. One love, Evan. That's awesome. That is so much better than cheers, Evan. Thank you for that. I like it. Uh, if you want to be like Evan and say, hey, I really like this thing you guys recommended, or conversely, you can say, hey, I really like this thing you guys might not know about, so I want to recommend it to you. We are always open for both of those. You can send it in an email via one love to Stuff Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hey, everybody, I want to talk to you for a second here about Canva, specifically Canva presentations that are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation. So start designing today at Canva.com. Designed for work. Just go to Canva, C-A-N-V-A dot com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.